Please turn in your Bible That's okay. <laughs> to Micah chapter 2. So we continue in our study of the book of Micah. We are now in chapter 2, and we will be studying verses 1 through 5. And the lesson tonight is entitled, The Lord's First Indictment Continued, Woe to Wealthy Oppressors. If you are a Christian, you have likely been on the receiving end of this question at some point. If you're young in the Lord... You will likely encounter this question at some point in your Christian walk. And the question is this. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? Many of us, I see heads nodding. Many have heard this question. And typically when I receive this question, I will ask the person to further explain what what they mean, particularly by what they mean about evil and Usually they go about detailing the various evils that we currently see in the world. Typically war, murder, theft, racial animus. On and on this list can go as the various expressions of evil that we see in the world are detailed. And we would agree that these things are evil. And while there are these various, while there can be various responses to this question, the one that I will often give is this. When I'm asked, why is there evil in the world? I say, because I'm in the world. And that will often result in a quizzical look. And then I'll go even further. I'll say, it's because you're in the world. And these responses will be the springboard to highlight that so often when we as human beings talk about evil, our instinct is to point outward. It's to point at what we can see, to categorize and identify evil as all the bad things that can be seen around us and are done by other people. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, We're told that a lawyer approached Jesus and asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And ever since the fall of man... Man has neither wanted to nor been able to perfectly love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And man has neither wanted to nor been able to perfectly love his neighbor as himself. Instead, we read these verses, or many verses such as these. In Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Psalm 14.1, we read, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. In Jeremiah 17.9, we read, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then in Matthew 15, verses 19 through 20, Lord Jesus Christ says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And these are only a few verses that we can identify in the Bible that tell us that evil, that sin, lives in the human heart. And that this evil then shows itself in the world by the actions of individuals who are not perfectly loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and not perfectly loving their neighbor as themselves. 
As Micah set out God's first indictment against Israel and Judah, it might have been easy for the first hearers of what we studied in chapter 1 to take away from Micah's words that God's judgment was in response to national sins. The two kingdoms were told of their idolatry. We read that in chapter 1, verse 7, specifically when we read about Samaria, or the northern kingdom, where it says, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. And during our last study, allusion was made to Judah's sin of trusting in its military instead of trusting in the Lord which was pointed to in the naming of the various towns that we studied in Judah. And specifically, we read in verse 13 of chapter 1, Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. And this was pointing back to King Solomon bringing in horses from other countries and and setting up these horses to defend the country. Uh, against military attack. But if the first hearers interpreted this early focus on the national sins of Israel and Judah as God's only concern, they would have been wrong. And tonight's passage, which continues God's first indictment, points to the specific sins of specific people. In this passage, we will see the truth displayed that God sees all from the outward to the heart. And we will also see in this passage that not only is God concerned about evil, he responds to evil as well. So with that as introduction, let us stand together and read Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster." In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Please be seated. In tonight's passage, we will see the sins of the wealthy oppressors, and God's response to the sins of the wealthy oppressors. Let's first look at the sins of the wealthy oppressors. And verse 1 starts, Woe to those who defies wickedness and work evil on their beds. What is woe? Merriam-Webster Dictionary describes woe as an interjection used to express grief regret, or distress. In the Bible, woe is great sorrow and distress that is associated with God's judgment. It's associated with a curse. In Matthew, Jesus pronounces woe upon the cities in which he did miracles, but they did not repent. We read that in chapter 11 of Matthew, verses 20 through 24. Chapter 23, he pronounced seven woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees for their wrong teaching and leading the people astray. And he pronounces woe upon Judas. In chapter 26, verse 24, who betrayed him. The passage opens with the words, woe to those, indicating that what was about to be spoken, this judgment that was about to be spoken, was being spoken to individuals of whom what was about to be said was true. This is God's word. What we read is true. And we note in verses 1 and 2 the activity of those upon whom this woe is pronounced. We see in verse 1 
that they devise wickedness. The NIV translates that as plan. They plan iniquity, the NIV translates that as. In verse 1, it says they work evil. The NASB calls it practicing or translates it as practices evil. They practice evil. The New King James says they work out evil. The NIV says they plot evil. Verse 1 says they perform it. Verse 2 says they covet. Coveting is the desire and wanting of other people's things, other people's property. Verse 2 tells us they seize, they take away, they oppress. The NASB translates that as they exploit. And the New King James Version expresses it as they defraud. As we look at verses 1 and 2, we're brought to our first question this evening, which is, what is the key phrase in verses 1 and 2, where the people on whom woes pronounced are described, and why is this the key phrase? What is the key phrase in these two verses? Yes, Terry? I was thinking divide wickedness, and that sums up all that we are going to see. Okay. Anyone else? Liz? Then I guess oppress. Okay. <laughs> That's part of their acting out their, their wickedness. Anyone else? Debbie? Okay. They covet. Again, it's something that they're they're doing. Yes, Titus. Okay. That's another possibility. <laughs> evil. Enoch? Okay. Master Steve? All the lines are similar except one. Okay. The one that's different is because it is in the power of their hands. Yes. <laughs> and I did not plant that answer. <laughs> because it is in the power of their hand. people described in verses 1 and 2 were powerful. And you are all correct that they did indeed work evil. They devised wickedness. They coveted. But they had the power in their hand to carry out that wickedness. To carry out that evil. The people described in verses 1 and 2 were likely very wealthy landowners who were able to enact schemes that they devised in order to take the land of others, likely poor or poorer landowners. Many commentators indicated that these wealthy landowners were pressuring poorer landowners into high-interest loans with risky provisions which would have caused the land to be forfeited if the loan was not repaid on time. And this was a practice that the law strictly forbade. In Exodus 22, verses 25 through 27, we read, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him, if ever you take a neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You see here, strict provid, uh, forbid, uh, forbid, for, stri being strictly forbidden from doing this, this practice. And Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 28, says this, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. And this is God speaking. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. 
If a man has no one to redeem it and then he himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of jubilee. In the year of jubilee, or in the jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. But this was not likely being followed. In his commentary on Micah, Richard Phillips says this, Wealthy oppressors were scooping up land and houses from simple freeholders to add to their already massive estates. Much as the small shopkeeper and farmer are squeezed out of business by large corporations today, family-sized agricultural plots were being bought out in Micah's day. Peter Craigie explains the result. The small landowner who could provide for himself and his family was suddenly destitute. Where once he was self-sufficient, he now became dependent on others. His livelihood lost to the unscrupulous dealers in real estate. And the small landowner lost not only his own livelihood, but also his inheritance. That which he might have bequeathed to his children for, the, for their future support and survival. The greed of the wealthy created a category of new poor. A section of society that once fended for himself, for itself, now could no longer do so. The nation's socioeconomic foundation was crumbling. Instead of using their power and influence for good, for righteousness, and for justice, these landowners used their power and influence for their own gain. And while outwardly their actions may have appeared right and just as they sought to collect on the debts from others, God saw their hearts and judged their actions to be sinful because they were operating out of covetousness. They were seeking to amass more wealth and more power for themselves by taking away fields and taking away houses and likely by bribing those who were responsible for rendering these judgments. Isaiah similarly pronounced woe against this practice in Isaiah 5.8, where he said, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. And so as we further consider these verses, that brings us to our next question. What do these verses, verses 1 and 2, tell us about the nature of sin generally and the sin of covetousness specifically. What does it tell us about the nature of sin generally and the sin of covetousness specifically? Why don't we start with the nature of sin generally? Why don't we start with that part of the question? Yes, Caleb. Okay, all right. Anyone else? Yes, Terry. A lot of times sin affects other people too. Okay, yes. Anyone else? It's a sin against God. Okay, it's a sin against God. Okay. All right. Think about, well, think about how it starts. Terry. In the heart. In the heart. Before they ever go out and take someone else's land, where is it starting? In the heart. They are devising wickedness. <laughs> they're thinking about it. It says they work evil on their beds. As they're going to bed, as they're about to fall asleep, as they're laying there trying to go to sleep, they're thinking about how they are going to go about 
performing evil. It says they covet fields. We can't see covetousness in someone's heart, but we surely see it when they seize someone's land, when they take someone's home, when they take someone's inheritance. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then James 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? They want something, and they can't get it yet. Instead of giving their time and energy to focus on God, suppress their sin, their covetousness causes them to devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. And then when morning dawns, they perform it. Additionally, these oppressors' covetousness moves them to seize fields and take home. So the outward evil seen throughout Israel and Judah's societies began in the hearts of these powerful, wealthy people. So this follows the course of sin, which we see as we read the next verses after the James passages that I just read. James 1, I'll read verses 14 and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then James 4, verses 1 and 2 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These landowners took their fight to the courts. (laughs) Their desire for more led them to take their neighbor's land, their homes, and their inheritance. What do these verses tell us about covetousness? Yes. It's rooted in idolatry. Very good. Covetousness is prohibited by the Tenth Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, thinking back to our introduction, by breaking this commandment, they were showing that they were not loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they were certainly not loving their neighbor as themselves. The New Testament further expounds on the nature of covetousness. And as it was said, covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so idolatry, which was identified as the national sin of Israel and Judah was actually seen in the hearts of the people. While there were these high places, while there was this worship of false gods, on the outside, people could clearly see the people, and particularly these wealthy landowners, allowed their covetousness, their desire for other people's things, their desire for more, led them to oppress those around them. Their desire was their idolatry. We see an example of this, actually, and I want us to turn there in 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. And this is before the time of Micah, but it is a very clear example of what we're reading of here. 
I won't read the whole chapter, but I will start in verse 1. It says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. We see here that the king is thinking that this is a good deal. I'll give you a better vineyard than the one that you have, or I'll give you the equivalent in money. Look at verse 3. This is Naboth's response. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you, what is it? The inheritance of my fathers. We see the importance of land. We see the importance of the passing on of land from one generation to the next in Israel. And one would think that Ahab being the king would understand the importance of this and would respect Naboth's response. But what do we see instead? In verse 4, it says, And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. I often say this is what we see when we're told no. We may not respond in the physical like Ahab did, but often in our hearts, we will be vexed, we'll be sullen, we'll be angry, we will pout because we did not get our way. Verse 5, Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, and you can almost hear the, the whining in his voice, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. The narrative goes on to tell us what Jezebel does in order to get Naboth's vineyard. She causes two worthless men to sit near him. And later on, they will go and say that Naboth cursed God and the king. Because of that, he would be killed. In verse 15, we read, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. This is what covetousness can lead to. When we don't get what we want, we're willing to murder other people to get it. We read God's response to this in verses 17 through 19. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And if we read further in 1 Kings, we'll read that King Ahab repented, God relented from bringing the judgment upon Ahab, but he indicates that that judgment will come in the future upon his family. So just as God responded to King Ahab's sin against Naboth by promising judgment, in the next section of our passage, you can turn back to Micah chapter 2. The next part of our passage, we see God's response to the sins of the wealthy oppressors. Verse 3. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord. Therefore, a key word in the Bible tells you everything that was stated before. It's going to give you the reason. Because these people behaved in this manner, the Lord is going to say something about it. The Lord issues his response. And his response begins in the second part of verse 3. Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. God's response begins with, behold. Another way of saying, observe. Look at this. Pay attention. God promises that against this family or against this nation, he says, I am devising disaster. And yes, the Assyrians plundered the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and the Babylonians would eventually plunder the southern kingdom. But who is behind it all? God himself. He is the one that is bringing this judgment. And note the parallel between man's actions and God's judgment. Note that just as the wealthy oppressors devise their wickedness, in verse 3 we read that God is devising disaster. As the poor are pressed down or oppressed, in verse 2, this disaster would be inescapable as indicated in the people not being able to remove the disaster from their necks. And while the oppressors seized fields and took houses, verse 4 says that the wealthy oppressors will say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our fields. These fields that were part of the estates of these wealthy landowners, would be taken from them and given to others. Just as they had gone and taken other people's land, God would take their land and give it to others. And in addition to the sins that we looked at in verses 1 and 2, particularly covetousness, what other sins do those against whom God will bring judgment live in according to verses 3 through 5. What other sins can you see identified in verses 3 through 5? Josh? Yes, pride. Verse 3, you shall not walk haughtily. Meaning that they were walking haughtily. They were walking in pride. Anything else in these verses? Yes, Robert. Well, going back to verse 1, because it is in the power of their hand, now uh, it changed to, they won't be able to remove that to their neck. Okay. But you cannot remove to your neck. Okay. So they have power to buy the new thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. Yes, Michelle. God is the one who is doing it. Yeah, he's, he's the one, yeah. Notice in verse 4 how they talk about the land. They refer to the land as our fields. And yes, they may have had possession of it, but ultimately, whose fields were they? They were God's. 
He is the one that had apportioned the land to Israel. See that in Joshua when each tribe received portions of land. And each person's portion was then passed down from one generation to the next. So because of their sin, God's judgment upon them be a complete judgment. Verse 5 indicates that these wealthy oppressors will be completely removed from the land, as will the whole nation, when it says, Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. There will be no portion of the land for them. It will be completely taken away. And so we see here clearly that God hates evil, that God sees evil, that God will judge evil. But some might say that Micah here is preaching social justice in these verses. And this was the next question. Do you agree with that assertion or disagree and why? Many would see here that these wealthy people are taking away these poor people's land. Micah's preaching against it. And therefore, he is, he's preaching social justice here. That's what he's after. He's after the, the poor being, being treated fairly and, and the wealthy uh, being uh, not empowered to be able to take the land of these poor people. So what would you say to the assertion that this is preaching a social justice in, this, in these verses? Yes, Josh. Can I answer that question? Sure. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, we started off looking at the device of wickedness, the work of evil, the covenants, um, the pride of this wealthy people. I mean, the issue here is not social justice, but the issue here is the heart of man mm. that is evil. Okay. So you would disagree yes. with that assertion that he's preaching social justice, okay? Anyone else? Any other thoughts? Well, I always like to start by defining terms. <laughs> if you look up the definition of social justice, you will see a definition that starts with justice, which is not a good definition of <laughs> the term social justice, but it says, what is fair or morally right in terms of the distribution of wealth opportunities, and privileges within a society. What is fair or morally right in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunity, and privileges within a society. Micah is not preaching against those who are wealthy. He is preaching against those who are covetous, are powerful enough to successfully act upon their covetousness. Social justice says that being wealthy in and of itself is evil, and in contrast, those who are poor are victims of social injustice. Hear what we read in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money, not money, 
The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We see a clearer example, I would say, even of this not being about social justice in this passage. Matthew 26, verses 6 through 11. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were very angry. Why this waste, they said, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now, would we say that Jesus didn't care about the poor? Not at all but he acknowledged that there will always be poor in a society. The Old Testament tells us that there will be people who are poorer than others. But here we see that Micah is preaching against covetousness. I will tell you tonight that you can be wealthy and covetous, and you can also be poor and covetous. So beware of our current age and the social justice agenda. Because in many ways, it is feeding the covetousness of those who have less. And as Miguel said earlier, whether you're rich or poor, if you're covetous, that means you are a sinner against the holy God. And therefore, there is no inherent evil in being wealthy. And likewise, there is no inherent virtue in being poor. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all stand guilty before God. And so as we consider this passage... We come to our last question of the evening. How should we apply the truths of this passage to our lives? And I will begin with this one. I have many others, but I'll begin with this one. We should not think that because we are not wealthy landowners who are taking fields and houses of others, that this passage doesn't apply to us. (laughs) That is one way that we should definitely apply it. We should not think that we're exempt from this. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. So what are some ways we should apply the truths of this passage to our lives? Yes, Robert. What's that? Protecting our heart. Against what in particular? And against what in particular? Yes. (laughs) Should protect our heart. We should beware of the danger of covetousness. We should have a right view of possessions. I think it's quoted as saying Rockefeller when asked how much money is enough, and he said a little more. That is not a right view of possessions. I saw Terry, and then I saw Caleb. Being content. First Timothy 6, 6 through 9. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We may think that a little discontentment is okay, but no, this tells us that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and that these senseless and harmful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. Caleb. We should have a correct 
hearts and high view of God. Yes. Because covetousness comes out of a heart that is um, worshiping um, material things and not God. Um, And so we need to have our, our, we need to be satisfied with God. Yes. um, Because things of this earth will not satisfy. Amen. Yes, Keith. We should be thankful for the gospel because each one of us, though we may not have the power to perform it, each one of us can say that we've devised wickedness, we've worked out evil on our beds, that we've coveted other people's things, and so we are deserving of God's judgment as well, but because of his great mercy shown in Christ, he rescued us from, from that judgment. Larissa. I think it also ties back to this past Sunday service. If we put ourselves in a position to serve, it keeps our heart away from that covetous. Mm. Because our desire is to serve, regardless of demographic, regardless of riches, mm-hmm. our heart is to serve and share the gospel. Okay. Amen. Yes, thanks. Um, we should not be like evil doers in this passage, but we should obey God and honor him. Amen. Others. Very good application. We should seek his righteousness. We should seek his righteousness. Yes, Michelle. All good applications. We should repent if we are devising wickedness as these wealthy landowners were doing. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So we see that God hates the devising of wicked plans. I have here also we should reject and not give in to the current social justice agenda that attempts to use the Bible to defend its ideology, and instead we should stand for righteousness and truth. Social justice is justice based upon what society deems to be what is right and moral. And we know that has and will change, because people change. Societies change. Cultures change. But God's justice is based on who he is, is a perfect and unchanging definition of what is right, what is moral, and what is good. And lastly, I have here, we should pray for our nation. We are a nation that has conf- who has committed far worse than what we see even in Micah's day. We are a nation whose imaginations of the hearts of the people are now clearly outward, (laughs) are expressed outwardly and without shame, without remorse. And so we see what God's response is to this nation, these who had his law, these who knew what was right and what was wrong. And, and we, have a na- we are in a nation where the gospel is shared freely. And many people will try to say that we're, we're a Christian nation of some sort, but we are not. But we can clearly see 
that the hearts of the people, the evil in the hearts of the people of this nation, is clearly seen. And clearly we are ripe for judgment. And so how we should pray that God would be merciful not to not necessarily just to this nation, but to the people, the individual souls of this nation. Because each one, without repentance and faith granted by the Lord, will face this judgment. And it won't be just a matter of being removed from the land. It will be removed from the blessing and the grace of God. Instead, it will be facing an eternity torment in hell. So as we end our time, are there any questions or any final comments? Let us pray. Our God and Father, help us to tremble at your word. Help us to be reminded of all that you have done for us in Christ in rescuing us from your coming wrath. But let us be moved and compelled to tell others, to tell others of the coming judgment. Tell others that you are angry against specific sins, against specific people. And that that you will respond. Father, help us in sharing what should be very bad news to point people to the good news. That in Christ, you have provided salvation. In Christ, you have provided a refuge and safety from your coming wrath. Lord, we pray that as we have read this passage tonight, that we would once again be reminded of all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would move us to pray more earnestly for our lost loved ones and friends, to be more earnest about sharing the gospel. Lord, that you would help us to live out the gospel as well. That we would be living epistles, that our lives would be a testimony of your saving grace. And Lord, we do pray that as you have your gospel proclaimed through us, that many would be saved, and that in their salvation you would be glorified. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.